0: Hello and welcome back to Take 97, a film podcast with me, your host, David Ingram. Today's episode, I continue my journey through the decades as I explore the 1970s in today's episode. If you're new to all of this, don't worry, I'll just give you a little catch up. I am doing currently a series of episodes totally dedicated to my favourite films from each decade, spanning from the 1920s all the way up to the 2010s. Now, today's episode, like I said, it's the 1970s, each episode I pick five of my top favourite films from that decade, and ultimately, whichever pick is at number one in each decade will go into an overall top ten, which I will give to you by the end of this series. Whilst that is very subjective of me to say, because there's lots of films to go through, these are my personal picks, and that's what I'll say for this one today. The 70s, I feel I know quite a lot of films. I'm getting closer and closer to films that I know and love as we get through these, but these ones I do have lots of personal favourites. And, you know, there's so many I could have picked. I could have made a top ten, but I'm only choosing five. So whilst I appreciate I've missed some arguably very good films off of this list, these are the ones that I enjoyed the most and that are very personal to me. So just sit back, relax, and enjoy this journey into the 1970s. Number five on my list is a 1976 film. It's probably not the one you're thinking of right now, because lots of people think of a couple of films from 1976. It's a horror film directed by Brian De Palma, starring Sissy Spacek, and a surprise appearance by John Travolta. And that is the film Carrie, which is based on the Stephen King novel of the same name. And obviously, like I said, Sissy Spacek plays the titular character Carrie White, who is a teenage girl, badly bullied amongst her people at school and we see her develop telekinetic powers, which she slowly but surely learns to use as we go through the film, and she ultimately reaps revenge on those who wronged her. Now, that's essentially it with the story. The story really is just teenage girl gets bullied, tries to fit in and be normal, as it were, because her mum is very, very religious. So much so, you know, she's got crucifixes up in her house with little statues of Jesus on them, and she makes... Carrie pray if she thinks that she's done something sinful, which I'll get back onto in a minute. The thing with Carrie, she's so extreme, her mother, that she makes Carrie very shy and in herself. But of course, that does change as the film continues. And I think with Sissy Spacex, she does a brilliant performance. I'd like to just mention that, you know, Badlands is another great film which Sissy Spacex stars in. I've only ever released, I think she's, there's three films I do, I can't think of the third one, but there's two that come to mind when people mention Sissy Spacek, and that is Carrie, obviously, and then the 1973 film, Badlands, but this one for me, I think she does a fantastic performance, very intense, very dramatic. If anyone's seen the posters for this, you'll know those big wide eyes as she's, spoiler alert here guys, drenched in blood. It absolutely chills me to the bone watching that scene every time. It's probably, that will lead me on to my point about this, my favourite One of my favourite scenes is the pig's blood scene, and we see she's drenched in blood. She's just been crowned prom queen at her high school prom, and she gets drenched in this blood by horrible bullies. One one particular bully, one girl, and her boyfriend, who's played by John Travolta. I, I still can't really get over the fact that John Travolta's in Carrie. I associate John Travolta with a lot of things, but Carrie is not one of them. I mean, I do now, but when I watched it, I was like, is that John Travolta? That's such a weird thing to look at. But no, I I think the pig's blood scene at the end of Carrie is a brilliant one. And yeah, you know, I've dived straight into that one, but really that's it, because Carrie is not a complicated film. Girl gets bullied, the film opens up with her having a period, which results, you know, to a massive scene of girls in a changing room with some slow motion as well. Slow motion's incorporated to, you know, you think you might be watching some other kind of film as the credits pop on screen. And then we focus in on Carrie with this, you know, sweet, very slow music playing in the background. We zoom in on Carrie and we see her all alone. And then she gets her period for the first time, I think, if I remember the plot correctly. And she is bullied to hell about it by all the girls. Her mum thinks that she's committed a sin because uh, she relates blood to sinful acts. She's one of those kind of really hardcore religious people who, you know, take lots of words in the Bible literally and punishes Carrie for things that she hasn't actually done anything wrong. But it's a story of two halves. She is very much an outcast, both in the family home and at school. She has a crush on a boy called Tommy Ross. She goes to prom with him. She can't quite believe it. And then all hell breaks loose. And that's essentially the story of Carrie. But you have to watch it to appreciate how good a film it is. Because even though it's a simple story, it's brilliant. The blood dripping down her face towards the end of the film its great. It's really good. Sissy Spacek plays the troubled teen to such a great degree. And then the other scene that I like as well, there's confrontation scenes between her mother, Margaret, and Carrie herself, where they literally rip into each other essentially. And Carrie does have control, but Margaret also has control. There's a bit of a power struggle going on there, even though there should be a classic parent-child relationship. There is that, but one's very much dominant over the other. But then the playing field becomes a bit more equal as she learns about her telekinetic powers. She learns how to control them a little bit. And then, like I said, the prom scene at the end is probably my favorite scene with the pig's blood and where she sets fire to things and she just walks out. That shot of her walking out of the hall where it's all in flames and she's drenched in blood. It's, you know, real classic horror movie. And to be honest with you, The Exorcist is great. That's a good example of filmmaking in the 70s and a very good horror film at that. I know someone, a friend of mine, who loves The Exorcist to bits and will probably be crushed that The Exorcist is not on my list. But I have to give The Exorcist an honourable mention because it's a brilliant film in terms of, you know, a clash between the biblical stuff and supernatural horror. I just really can't stress enough how hard it was to pick my favourite one. But Carrie, for me, I have the most memories of. And it's not even because it's a Stephen King book. Like, I don't, I haven't read the Stephen King book, shameably, but I, do, I love the film. The film is really good. But overall, Carrie is my favourite And, yeah, there's the split-screen effect when she's going all berserk as well. That was a technique that was used a few times in the 70s. It looks very arty as well with the lighting and where you can see one perspective and you can see her, you can see what she's seeing at the same time. It's a really cool effect that happens. So I genuinely think that's a great example of horror filmmaking. And horror filmmaking in the 70s was very low budget. You know, you had the legends of Tobe Hooper, John Carpenter, Halloween... Texas Chainsaw Massacre all low budget films independently made which have now gone on to win greater acclaim and be created into massive franchises that are now well respected by fans alike but I think Carrie for me is probably my most enjoyable one it's intense but it's not as intense as the likes of The Exorcist The Exorcist is a big good intensity trip if you want to go down that route but Carrie is my number five pick. Number four, though, on my list is a slightly different change in tone, completely changed, and that is a musical. And this doesn't surprise, or at least it shouldn't surprise anyone, that I love this film, because I do like a little bit of a musical once in a while, but this one is purely on here because it's the fun factor. It's directed by one of my favourite directors, uh, Sir Alan Parker, rest in peace, God rest him. He's done so many good films that I have enjoyed as a kid at growing up, discovering them for the first time, and then as I got older. Such great filmography. But this film was also released in 1976, called Bugsy Malone. And I have a very personal connection to this film as well, because I starred as one of the characters, Fat Sam, who is a like a crime boss kind of gangland leader in 1920s Prohibition, New York, in a stage production of Bugsy Malone. This film... Bugsy Malone is my number four pick, and I absolutely love it to bits. It's such a fun film, like Carrie, you know, it's a fun horror film, but yeah, you know, it's a horror film at the end of the day. Whereas Bugsy Malone, it's a cast full of kids, and that's the thing. They always say, don't work with animals and don't work with children. Alan Parker, literally the entire cast of kids. <laughs> I mean, Jodie Foster stars in this as well. She stars as a character called Tallulah. You've got Scott Bio as Bugsy. John Cassisi as Fat Sam, Florey Duggar as Blousey, Martin Lev as Dandy Dan, who's the opposition to Fat Sam, and we've also got a little appearance from Bonnie Langford as a character called Lena Morelli. You know, it's such a weird... There's some of them in there, so Bonnie Langford and Jodie Foster would go on to great things later on and be really well known, at least in the British public eye. You know, overall, this film is such a fun piece of cinema. And at the end of the day, yeah, it's set in Prohibition-era New York, and... It's, like I said, it's like Carrie. It's a simple story. There's not too much complexity in this one, but that's because it's really fun and easy to enjoy. And I think that's the thing with the 70s. You get a lot of revisionist pieces of film, even though they're entertaining. You get films that are referring back to the eras that have gone by. So this one's referring back to the 20s. One of my later picks will actually be looking at the 1950s and set in the 50s, little clue for you there. But this one's set in the Prohibition era in New York City I've got so many songs that I could mention to you right now, (laughs) Uh, but like there's Fat Sam's Grand Slam. So Fat Sam is a gang boss. He has got a big speakeasy. There's sliding doors, secret caverns, and entrances to get to places where you can drink booze illegally. Although Obviously, I don't think they are actually drinking booze, because that would be kind of irresponsible on the production company's part, but <laughs> they, you know, even though the cast are kids, they're playing it like they're adults, even though they've got lots of child sensibilities, and they bring that fun edge to it. But yeah, everything is really fun, and instead of guns, they use splurge guns, as they're called, and they essentially, so we don't actually know whether anyone actually gets, if you get killed when you get splurged. Like, does the splurge kill you? something that's never explained really but (laughs) i think that the aim of this film was just really fun so splurge guns they're designed just like those classic guns that you would see in these 1920s gangster films or you know everything of that period where they look like the actual guns but they've just got pie splurge inside them it's really funny because they use cream pies as well as well you know pies on plates and stuff and the splurge guns, and it's all out warfare in the final scene. The final scene where they all, you got Dandy Dan as the opposition and Fat Sam in Fat Sam's speakeasy, Fat Sam's Grand Slam, and they have a massive pie fight and it's an absolute mess. I can imagine that was absolute chaos to organise at the time, but it comes across really well. A highlight for me is the that final sort of confrontation scene, but the way that the child actors take it so seriously, it really is such a sweet, sincere film, which is fun and enjoyable altogether. I would say because it's a musical, I can't help but mention some of the songs that are my favourite parts of this. Fat Sam's Grand Slam, like I said a second ago, which introduces the speakeasy itself, sung by some chorus girls. There's also the song, the title song, Bugsy Malone, played at the beginning of the film. The Beginning of the film is very interesting because you open up with this very dark street, and it's all all of this was filmed in either on location in and around Pinewood in Britain, or in Pinewood Studios, on a little backlot soundstage. And we get this lovely, wide shot, very dingy, really gritty-looking New York side streets, and somebody who, Roxy Robinson, do you work for Fat Sam, blah-de-blah, and he gets splurged in the face, and he dies or doesn't die, whatever happens to someone when they get splurged. And then we cut to the music. We have like a voiceover kind of explaining who Roxy Robinson is. And then we see Bugsy Malone, played by Scott Byer, walking by to his song. Uh, I think it's Paul Williams who sings that song. He sings a lot of the song lead vocals on some of the songs that are played in the film. Because none of the kids actually sung. Because they were all lip synced to people who sung for them. But it really, even though that's sort of one thing, the dubbing, I don't really mind it too much. Yeah, Bugsy Malone, the song, it's an interesting choice because we see him walking in the streets and we get a montage of all these moments in the film, which you're going to see. And it's kind of like to make sure people don't leave after seeing that initial splurging. They think, oh, what kind of a rubbish film is this? You get to see the tone of the film through these little pieces of montage at the beginning. So then people are like, oh, do you know what? I'm in for this ride. I'm going to stay with it. That's what kind of a film it is. And then they sort of segue into it. It's an interesting way to open a film, really. I know other films have done it, but I don't think many would do it now, where they open with a montage of moments from the film to come, in fear they might spoil it, possibly. But I think, genuinely, you know, interesting film. One of my final highlights is a song called Bad Guys. It's sung by the kids, so the gang, that work for Fat Sam, and it's just such a, you know, really catchy, so we could have been anything that we wanted to be. And that little little tiny bit gets reused again for another song later on but they change the words from bad guys to good guys and you know it's cheesy musical stuff but it is a really enjoyable film i can't really overstate that much i think i haven't mentioned as well though this is kind of partially based around the real life events of like al capone and bugs moran the real life gangsters of the 1920s in like new york chicago gangsterism of the time but obviously Aspects of that were changed to make it more humorous, more funny, more enjoyable, and obviously the musical side of it was brought in. I mean, Tomorrow, sung by one of the the cleaners, uh, so Fizzy, the cleaner of the Grand Slam, it's such a lovely, heartwarming song. He always wants to be a dancer, and it's such a great piece of cinema, really. Even though the kids lip syncing to the song, it's clearly not his voice. I think it's a beautiful piece of filmmaking overall. This film, because you know, you got kids. High octane splurge action, and you've got pedal cars. Pedal cars are great. Pedal cars. Rather than proper cars, so that the kids can drive them, they actually pedal them. And they don't hide the fact they're pedaled. They actually pedal them on screen. And finally, my last final fact about this is that there's a character called Babyface where I think they do it in Home Alone where they go, Give this to Kevin, give this to Kevin. They're like, Give this to Babyface, give this to Babyface, give this to Babyface. And the character of Babyface is played by a young Dexter Fletcher very young Dexter Fletcher, who some of you may know his name, because he then went on to be a director, and he's done a few other acting roles as well here and there. But Dexter Fletcher particularly is more recently known for directing Rocket Man, the 2019 Elton John fantasy biopic. He's also directed the film Sunshine on Leaf in 2013, and he also, I think he executive produced, you know, he helped out with Bohemian Rhapsody, essentially, as well. So young Dexter Fletcher, in there as well, nice little bit of trivia for you there. And since we're on the topic of musicals, I'm going to really indulge myself in this list. My third pick is a film that I genuinely love, and it's a love it or hate it film, because it is a cult classic. It was released in 1975, directed by Jim Sharman, originally conceived as a stage show in London by Richard O'Brien, who plays a character called Riff Raff in the film, and some of you are probably already guessing what I'm coming up with right now, and the film that I am giving my number three spot to is the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Now, I know lots of people will think there's so much more high-class cinema than the Rocky Horror Picture Show, but even, you know, at the time, the Rocky Horror Picture Show bombed, it bombed really badly, it was not well-received at all by critics, uh, there was a few audiences that didn't really like it, they thought it was too scandalous, There was, they thought know, it was a bit strange and weird and abstract, but then there was obviously, it started playing at midnight circuits, and slowly, slowly, an audience began to form, and this audience became the cult following, which then has now reached on beyond the decades. Even to this day, people will be watching the Rocky Horror Picture Show, be it in their homes, or in the preferred space, in the cinema. I'm not one of the crazy Rocky Horror groupies, I don't go to the shows dressed up or anything like that, but I've only really ever watched the film in the comfort of my own home. I have seen a stage production of it once, but other than that, I've only really seen the film at home, For a cult classic that, you know, it's a bad movie that's then got really good reception over the years, I think the Rocky Horror Picture Show can get a little bit underappreciated sometimes because there's so many good films in the 70s. You know, it's really a a funny film. And it's called Rocky Horror Picture Show. A story by Richard O'Brien, as I said. He stars as a character called Riff Raff, who's like kind of a bit like a Frankenstein-like butler type character. He's really creepy. He's got like a little blonde wig with a little bald patch in the middle. A little bit of a Hunchbacker Notre Dame vibe there. And he's accompanied by the brilliant Patricia Quinn, playing a character called Magenta. Fabulous cast overall. A lot of these were from the original production as well based on London Stage Show in a real small back alley bit of a theatre and it's gone on to this and it's the film if you think of the Rocky Horror Picture Show most people probably think and jump straight to Tim Curry who I know for several films but to be honest my number one film that I know him for will always be the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Uh, and he plays Dr. Frank Converter, who is a transsexual from Transylvania, as you will learn through the song Sweet Transvestite, towards the beginning of the film as the characters Brad and Janet, played by Barry Bostwick, so Brad Majors, and Susan Sarandon as Janet Weiss. A young, idealistic couple. It's kind of like a... The setting is almost like a 1950s America, 60s America, kind of. But it's very timeless, and you get this very classic white picket fence bit of town called Denton. And you get to see them experience this weird and wacky adventure. And it also stars Meatloaf. Meatloaf is a character called Eddie who's been frozen <laughs> and comes crashing through a block of ice in a vault on a motorbike and starts playing a saxophone and singing all rock and roll. It's, you know, the musical is a mishmash of rock and roll, sci-fi, B-movie tropes as well, because it's very, not cring- well cheesy in some respects then. And I think that the film overall is a film for anyone who thinks they're an outsider and thinks, you know, that's cool, I'm going to get in on that. It's a film that's basically derived from a show on stage that was an outcast from the rest of normal theatre. And slowly it's bringing in an audience of outcasts, people who feel they need a sense of belonging. And the film is used so universally as well. Like in the 1980 film, also by Alan Parker, might I add, called Fame, there's a scene where a couple of characters actually go to see a showing of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. In the 2013 film Perks Have Been a Wallflower, set in the 90s, they get to go and see a production of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which some of the kids in the film are actually portraying the characters from the film on the stage in front of it, which is what people would do at any of these screenings. Whatever Happened to Saturday Night is a song that I will always love, Hot Patootie, whatever you want to call it, sung by Meatloaf. It's a really, really catchy song and really good to get down to (laughs) Uh, and then obviously there's the obvious one let's do the time warp again and you know before there was the cha-cha slide there was the time warp which started off the whole craze of song lyrics which involve instructions telling you it's just a jump to the left and then a step to the right (laughs) these songs are so embedded in me and i'm sure several other people as well even if you're not a fan of it you know a little bit of it especially the time warp And, you know, the Time Warp is the introduction to the madness of the Transylvanians in this massive mansion-sized house where Frankenfurter and and all his minions, Riffraff, Magenta and Columbia, live. It's madness personified, really. You follow this couple who break down and they end up wanting to use the phone and they end up getting stripped naked and having sexual experiences of discovering who they are. It's a very strange film. It had an equally strange sequel equal whatever you want to call it called shock treatment which was it's an early precursor to reality tv it's a very good thing for that i think it's learning to get a bit more appreciation yes it's from the 80s but i think the thing with that film you can't create a cult classic and rocky horror was the original cult classic and it all sort of starts off with i see you shiver with Antissa, patient from tim curry and yeah like i said musical horror film sci-fi elements particularly sci-fi B movie elements, where you'll see the influences from the likes of Patricia Quinn's Magenta. Her hairstyle towards the end of the film, there's a bit where she has a change in style. It looks very much like The Bride of Frankenstein, both in the colour and also just the shape of it. There's lots of easter eggs there, so Rocky Horror Picture Show is a mad, mad film, but I would recommend it highly just for a bit of fun, really, to be honest with you. But yeah, it's a mad mess. I would say go for it. I, I think the ultimate, my the Time Warp is my favourite moment from Rocky Horror, but at the same time, I think the whole thing as a whole is a big, strange moment, really, in the space of 90 minutes. The songs I can pick, Whatever Happened to Saturday Night and Time Warp, also science fiction double feature on with the lips, which are Richard O'Brien's voice and I think it was, I think it was Patricia Quinn's lips as well, if I remember rightly. Very iconic. The lips of Rocky Horror forever. If you want to get a bit freaky and watch something strange, go for Rocky Horror Picture Show. But moving on to my second pick, my penultimate pick of the episode, I am going to be taking you to a galaxy far, far away. And that is a big, massive clue. <laughs> and that is the original 1977 George Lucas film, Star Wars. Obviously, Many people will probably know this film as Star Wars Episode 4, A New Hope, because that's how it's been labelled over the years, because of the prequel series and the sequel series, and just because of the subtitling of the next two films, so Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. In retrospective, George thought it would be a good idea to title the original one. But the original one was just simply called Star Wars when it came out in 1977. Yes, I mentioned the importance of Stanley Kubrick in 2001, A Space Odyssey, in the 1960s episode, and how that kind of initially started off this sci-fi dream for George Lucas, essentially, along with a few other films, but that one really sort of stood out. Star Wars is the quintessential space opera. You know, it's an epic saga, which has only just come to an end, well, we think. They keep continuing the universe on, like, Disney are expanding it with The Mandalorian with, you know, set during certain parts of the franchise, and there's loads of spin-offs, but I would highly say the original Star Wars, obviously no one can actually see the original Star Wars as it was originally shown. There are a few versions out there on, like, I think there's bootleg copies of what people claim to be the original, the despecialized editions, because in in the 1990s, the original trilogy had a load of new special effects added so CGI monsters and creatures from other planets extra effects that have been enhanced for the modern viewer and not all of them were that great and I think there's still a lot of really good things in the original you know if you can watch it because the version that's on Disney plus and the version you can get on a blu-ray copy at the moment is the is a 2011 I think it's the 2011 restoration of it with all the special effects in there based on the 1990s special editions. It's a lot ongoing thing that I will probably have a conversation with a friend of mine and bring him on the podcast to talk about that. And the differences between them and were the new effects really needed? The general answer will be no, they weren't needed. But let me just get straight to the point with Star Wars. It's, like I said, directed by George Lucas, 1977. It stars Alec Guinness as Obi-Wan Kenobi. And the original Obi-Wan Kenobi is older Kenobi, not Ewan McGregor, as much as people love him. Uh, Mark Hamill in the original role that he made so well, and that is Luke Skywalker, Carrie Fisher as Princess Leia, Harrison Ford. I sinned so many films that I could have put on this list with Harrison Ford in, but Harrison Ford in... Star Wars is the best one <laughs> overall, and then we have obviously we have the likes of Anthony Daniels as C3PO, and we've got little R2D2 as well. Who genuinely, yo, C3PO and R2D2. We start our story off with them escaping with the plans for the Death Star, which is this big, massive spaceship. For anyone who hasn't seen Star Wars, I don't know where you've been, or you might just not be into it. But C3PO and R2D2 are two droids. Their one's a humanoid one, C3PO, and one's like a small, little domed-shaped dustbin one that's called R2-D2, they escape with these plans which have been given to them by Princess Leia to basically give them to Obi-Wan Kenobi, because Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope, and that's kind of where the a new hope came from, really, the you're my only hope, and there's a little tag in there from that tagline that came in the later edition where they renamed the, the film, uh, and they take the Death Star plans for this giant massive spaceship It looks like a moon, if you know the image you know it, And it essentially is the bad guy's big massive spaceship that plans to destroy the universe and just conquer it and have it run under the Empire, as it's known. Which is led by, in this film we're introduced to just Darth Vader on his own. There's the big reveal in Empire Strikes Back, which I'm not going to go into, but if you check out my Movie Moments episode with Gov Chandran, we'll talk through the I Am Your Father moment and... I'll just leave you at that, but Star Wars is an epic space opera, lots of great model shots. Before the special editions came out, even then, the model work on these is way ahead of its time. It's, you know, brilliant special effects. I say about 2001 A Space Odyssey being ahead of its time, Star Wars really does set the precedence for practical special effects that are used in terms of model work at special effects and visual effects as well, before CGI was a thing. So, I genuinely encourage anyone to watch Star Wars if they're into early filmmaking. There's some brilliant stuff on YouTube as well, if you can find it, based around the likes of their special effects. There's practical creatures, little creatures they use to create little aliens and the model work itself. It's a, you know, really good masterclass in early filmmaking. and whilst George Lucas has gone on to do a few choice things in his career, I do think that Star Wars was his crowning glory in the original essence when he first made it, before he got obsessed with digital. But we won't go near Jar Jar today. <laughs> and you know, John Williams does the music, the sand my two sort of favourite things, Han Solo and Chewbacca, so Chewbacca as well is a great character, along with Han Solo, great friends on the Millennium Falcon, their ship that they fly which has some great shots in the film in space when they go to hyperspeed and ultimately my favourite moments from this, there's the bits where Darth Vader enters the bridge at the beginning of the film, I do like that, but the sandy landscapes of Tatooine are probably my favourite cinematic shots, they look so good, like the bits as well where you have Luke looking at the twin suns in the sky, just, I think it's Tunisia that was filmed in originally, it's such a brilliant landscape, and I love the cinematic beauty, and then you get the wipes, the wipes go between the shots, which really make you feel all spacey and out there, and very interesting stuff, other than the sandy landscapes of Tatooine and other planets and such. In the original one, I love, spoiler alert ahead, but the destruction of the Death Star, it's a big air punch moment. You can't really go wrong with it. And it's set up so many other, it was a big rival for Star Trek as well. You know, Star Wars and Star Trek and everything else. So, number two pick, Star Wars. But finally, moving on to number one on my list. And I know I've overstated this, I do like musicals. I'm heading back to a musical time. It's a 1978 film directed by Randall Kleiser, set in 1950s and the late 1950s, in America in a high school setting. It's a romance film, it's got music in there, and the simple word for it is Greece. Because Grease is the word. I cannot express how much I love this film. This film is a something I've grown up with, to be honest. I've grown up with a lot of these films, but this one I remember, I've listened to the soundtrack more times than I can ever sort of tell you. I'd hear it when I was younger. It'd be on in the car. I love it to pieces. For anyone who doesn't know Grease, Grease is a film set in a high school. We start off with these two lovers, so Danny Zuko and Sandy Olson, played by John Travolta, Mr. Carey himself, <laughs> and Olivia Newton-John, who find love over the summer. They then go back to school, but Sandy actually moves to America. She moves from Australia to America, and she sort of gets to know the real danny zuko that she didn't get to know in her summer holidays and they come together by the end of the film but the whole film really centers around you know are they going to get back together is danny gonna be honest and say look i love her because the way this looks is it's all set up it's very much it's not romeo and juliet so this is where high school musical gets its inspiration from where because you're in that group at school you can't mix with that group so we've got the pink ladies which sandy gets sort of Affirmed with. She's not an actual pink lady, but she hangs around with them. So you get the likes of Rizzo, Frenchie, you know, all those ones that stay their little cool pink jackets with pink ladies written on them. They arrive in this pink 50s Cadillac as well. It's such a cool image. And you get the T Birds who love a jacket wearing lots of grease in their hair. Cool guys, the cool guys at school. And they Really are in opposition with each other. There's a bit of tension between Danny and Rizzo. So Rizzo, played by the amazing Stockard Channing, who I think to be honest, one of my favourite moments of the film is the song towards the end. So I'm not going to give away too many plot details for Greece because you need to go and watch it. But there's a song called "There Are Worse Things I Would Do," where Rizzo's in a bit of a funk about certain things that have gone on in the film relating to a relationship with another character called Kaniki, and it's a lovely bittersweet moment because she's sort of coming to terms with what things mean and is she willing to sort of be honest and open herself up again but at the same time you know she feels a bit ashamed because people are talking about her and relation to the story and what's gone on in the plot but Rizzo Stockard Channing is a very feisty one in the song Summer Lovin' she does several side jibs in reference to danny even though she doesn't know who it is when sandy's singing about him it's a proper musical from start to finish it's you know it's got a really good soundtrack as well for the songs like rock and roll party queen tears on my pillow loads of different songs that are on the soundtrack but aren't sung by the cast and then you've got the classics of summer loving grease lightning we go together the lot it's absolutely amazing and i would say if you want a fun night and you want something to put on, and you want a bit of fun. Obviously, go and see a theatre production of Grease because it's just as good. But watch the film Grease because it's a really fun piece of cinema. The minute you see the Paramount logo on the screen and you hear "Love is a many splendid thing," you think you're in for one thing, and then Grease comes in with its like really hardcore jazziness. And ultimately, the o- opening sequence is a highlight in itself with its hand-drawn cartoon. Intro with the characters all drawn like actual cartoon figures, all to the tune of Greece is the word, and then we fade into the high school and the story just plays out from there. I can't really sell it any more than that, but other things, the it's a fifty setting, even though some of the songs aren't always hundred percent fifty sounding. Like I think "Hopelessly Devoted to You" was quite well recognized in terms of a song, uh, sung by Olivia Newton-John. Obviously, Olivia Newton-John being a really big pop star in her own right. Later in her career, she just blows me away every time hopelessly devoted to you is a brilliant really warming song really sad and so and sandy's a really nice one sung by john travolta so they both have their moments but for me greased lightning is the most fun sequence where they're fixing up this car to go for a race against some rival gang the t-birds and then they go into this dream sequence where they're in this massive workshop which is all white walled and they've got a shiny car in the middle and it's just amazing i just think it's so cool they you know they slip and slide underneath the hood of the car and it was such ease and you know it's just a cool song you can't help but dance and do the do the moves for Grease lightning as well but the one that i think is really good piece of filmmaking is it's a dream sequence musical number because it's not actually happening but it's the dreamy look of the song beauty school dropout where dd con's character of french she comes along and she's in this burger joint and she talks to this waitress about, oh, I, I'm gonna, I've been to beauty school, but I've dropped out and I want to go back to Wrightdale. You know, she wants to go back to school. She's dyed her hair pink, but then she goes into this really lovely dreamscape where she talks to Teen Angel, as he's referred to, and singing beauty school dropout, and you see little funny bits where some of the other characters are in the scene. So Rizzo's there, and Jan, all the other pink ladies apart from Sandy, and obviously, and Danny's not there either, but some of the T-Birds are in there, they're playing these little characters, but not themselves, they're little angels as well, in this heavenly white lit space, really, it looks really classic Hollywood as well, even, it's set in the 50s, and I suppose this is an ode to the classic Hollywood movie musical number, and at the same time, I it pastiches that, and brings something new and cool to it, it looks really pretty, I just, very good song, very dreamy, Dee Dee does a brilliant job just being... like She she doesn't sing in it, but she looks really like, oh, amazing, and it's very idealistic and very 50s-like, which fits in with the time. And finally, You're the One That I Want, We Go Together, both those songs, so You're the One I Want, sung by John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John. Bit of fun to end the film with, everybody, and We Go Together. And that final shot where they go up into the car it's just yeah there's lots of theories about that i read a good theory at one point from a little shout out to the uncredited extras podcast they posted a theory picture at one point about that sandy's actually been dead since the beginning because there's a lyric in summer nights where they say oh i saved her from drowning and they reckon that this whole thing is an elaborate fantasy Uh, and you know i can kind of that's one way of looking at it but the other way to look at it is it's a bit of fun but yeah credit to the uncredited extras podcast because i saw that on their twitter and instagram but really genuinely such a cool film overall. I always wanted a leather jacket. I've never got one since, but I think it would be such a cool thing to have. And you know, grease lightning all the way. That's all I got to say on the 1970s. There's so many I could have picked, but I didn't. So I'm sorry if I missed your favourite one off. There's lots that I could mention. Saturday Night Fever and The Exorcist are definitely up there, and Taxi Driver as well are like up there with my honourable mentions, but this is my top five for the moment. So just a quick recap... We have Carrie, directed by Brian De Palma from 1976, Bugsy Malone, Alan Parker, 1976, The Rocky Horror Picture Show, directed by Jim Sharman, 1975, Star Wars, or Star Wars A New Hope, George Lucas, 1977, and finally... Greece, 1978 directed by Randall Kleiser. I hope you've enjoyed these picks of mine guys and I look forward to seeing you on the next episode where we will be discussing everything from the 1980s. Things are going to get a lot more bright and colourful and get your leg warmers out ready for the 80s episode guys. There's some more pics coming your way. So that's a wrap on Take 97 of Film Podcast the 1970s edition with me your host David Ingram and I look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Thank you very much guys. See you later.